Section 12 of The Junior Classics, Volume 9, Stories of Today. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Holding the Pipe by Albert W. Tolman as the father of Billy and Jack Remfrey emerged from the sitting-room closet with the checkerboard, the two boys sidled up to him. Billy hugged an armful of rockets, while Jack was generously laden with firecrackers and Roman candles. "'Aren't you going with us to Steel Bridge? You promised!' Tom Renfrey hesitated. Fourth of July night, though it was, he could not forgo his weekly battle with Lawn Penfield his fellow fireman, and ancient checker foe. So he compromised. Run along, boys. All come after just one game. Don't point those rockets towards the city. Whooping, the boys made off. Tom and Lon sat down to the board, undisturbed by the noise outside. This game was unusually important, for Lon's victory the Saturday before had tied them with seventeen apiece. While they whittled down each other's forces, Henry Marcotte, watchman in Buston's lumber yard, was uneasily watching three boys with firecrackers just outside the fence. So engrossed was Henry with the foe in front that he did not observe a flaming rocket stick which, after soaring far and high, dropped quietly upon a hard pine board pile behind him. Startled by a sudden crackling, he looked back to see the whole pile ablaze. When the rocket fell, Remfries, four kings, were beleaguering Penfield's remaining three in the latter's dodge corner. Marcotte pulled the yard alarm just as an incautious onslaught cost the besieger two pieces to his enemy's one and left the game a draw. Clang, clang. Over went the board, and up leaped both callmen. Out they darted, Remfrey snapping his spring-lock, and ran at top speed for the house of Hose Five. The cart was rattling into the street when they jumped abroad. "'Where's the fire?' helloed Remfrey to Louville Craig, his elbow neighbor on the swaying wagon. "'Boston's lumber-yard!' Craig shouted. "'They say a rocket from Steel Bridge started it.' Remfrey caught his breath as if doused with cold water. "'Steel Bridge! One of his boy's rockets!' His heart went down like lead. Oh, why had he not gone with them and given up his game? But it was too late now. That very thing had been the nightmare of the fire department ever since he joined it, ablaze in the worst place and under the worst conditions. The city stood west of the river on three terraces. The first contained lumberyards, coal sheds, and mills. The second, thirty feet higher, held the railroad tracks and business section, while the third, thirty feet higher still, was covered with residences. Unless the flames were checked, the east wind would drive them against an oil tank right above the yard on the edge of the second terrace. That, once a fire, the whole city might be wiped out. As Hose 5 clattered across the railroad gridiron between hurrying crowds, Remfree sighted the yard and felt sick. The pine was blazing fiercely, sending out a dense yellowish-black smoke. The second alarm began to clang, calling out the whole force. 
The cart stopped near the engine, which was already in position. The two call men rapidly donned rubber coats and helmets, while their mates took the butt of the hose off the wagon and rushed it to the hydrant. Run a line up Adam Street, you two, back of the yard, shouted Captain Joe Porter. It was the post of responsibility in the very track of the flames, and he picked his best men for it. Penfield and Remfrey again jumped on the hose cart. Go ahead, yelled the hydrant man to the driver. Off rattled the wagon, dropping a lengthening trail of hose. The instant they stopped, the firemen screwed on the pipe and began to drag the line toward the yard. Close by stood the oil tank, big and black, with the smoke eddying thickly round it. Thirty feet below lay the lumber piles. Dropping their hose over the edge of the stone wall, they slid down to the ground. Play away, five, shouted Remfrey, pulling down more line. They were in a space between high board piles, and a strong wind was driving the fire and smoke toward them. The spot might easily become a dangerous trap. Come on, Tom, bellowed Penfield, tugging at the pipe. Let's get well in before the water comes. The piles were twenty feet apart. Round a corner, twice as far ahead, red tongues were spurting. Already the air was hot and thick. Crouching, they dragged the line along several yards. Remfrey was wild with impatience. He was responsible for that fire. He must put it out. Far enough, he gasped at last. Isn't that water ever coming? It was fully five hundred feet to the engine. A few lengths from it, the three-inch hose was siamesed off into two smaller lines, one of which ran to the impatient callman. Suddenly a tremor shook the closely woven cotton. Here it is, exclaimed Penfield. Psht, psht, hissed the nozzle, spasmodically at first, but in a few seconds, foaming strongly under a two-hundred-pound pressure, the water came. The two rested the pipe over their knees, grasping the handles firmly, interlocking fingers under the tip. A powerful white jet was soon bombarding the burning pine. The hose stiffened under their hands, responsive to every impulse from the engine. It was like a live thing, struggling to escape. But they knew its tricks, and held it hard. Three years they had been together on the pipe, and never once had it got away from them. At the very apex of the fire, they literally held the safety of the city in their hands. Behind them loomed the gaunt black oil tank, should the flames reach its ten thousand gallons, nothing could save the city. Remfrey groaned at the thought. He envied Penfield. Penfield had only the fire to think of. That was bad enough, to be sure, but it was tenfold worse for him, Tom Renfrey, to feel that he might have prevented all this had he only gone to Steelbridge with his boys. Low as they might stoop, they could not avoid the smoke. Their smarting eyes could barely see to direct the jet. Both were choking. Penfield leaned forward and thrust his hand into the stream to spray his face. His foot slipped. He lost his balance. His grip on the handle loosened. With a tremendous leap, the pipe wrenched out of the men's grasp and disappeared straight up in the thick smoke. A deluge burst above the firemen. The hose had changed from their best friend to their worst enemy. It whipped the board piles, it slapped full length on the ground to their right, 
vanishing, it dropped a moment later on their left. Fearful in plain sight, it was doubly, trebly terrible in that impenetrable pitchiness. One rap from the crazy nozzle would smash a man's skull. Remfrey grabbed Penfield's shoulder. Their first impulse was to run, but where? Straight ahead was the only way out, and the fire barred that. Behind rose the thirty-foot wall. Instinct told Remfrey the only spot where, for a brief period, they might be comparatively safe. Back to the corner, he whispered hoarsely, and the two ran for their lives. Once the nozzle jabbed Penfield in the spine, then Remfrey ducked in time to lose only his helmet from a flying loop of hose. Soon they were crouching in the angle between the wall and a board pile. But the flames would soon drive them from this refuge. Besides, the chief counted on them to fight back the fire from the oil tank. The force had its hands full. Every man and every line were busy. Somehow they must signal the engine to shut the water off until they could regain control of the pipe. Hold on, five, shrieked Remfrey, and Penfield seconded him with, Shut that line down! But no answering cry came back. It was not strange. Two men under a high wall, throats full of smoke and cinders, could hardly make themselves heard above the roar of the flames and the hissing of water, capped by the whirring and puffing of seven engines. Desperate as was their own situation, the firemen's first thought was of the ruin threatened by the fire. The destruction of the lumber yard was bad enough, but the whole city, every business block, every dwelling, their own homes, it was horrible. Renfrey remembered he had just paid for his house and that he had no insurance. Meanwhile, the fire was growing hotter. Shriveling blasts swept against the wall. Hot, stinging pitch-pine smoke filled their eyes and lungs. The nozzle was vainly cascading every spot except the one that needed it. It maddened Remfrey to see so much good water wasting. Every gallon was priceless. He could stand it no longer. No use, Lon, he croaked, putting his mouth close to his comrade's ear. We can't make him here. We've got to catch that pipe. Both knew well the peril they risked. Three months before had not a flying nozzle snapped Billy Bowen's leg. But they must take chances. Remfrey slunk along the right-hand board pile. Penfield followed the left. Should one get his hands on the hose, the other was to spring to his help. The dense smoke thinned, and they glimpsed the line, slatting like a maddened python. Three or four clutches at the elusive loops resulted only in their being flung down and dragged in the dirt. Through those moments of exhausting struggle, of harrowing suspense, dread of the fire creeping ever nearer the oil, destruction menacing the entire city, Remfrey's brain was busy with the terrible thought that he and his boys were responsible for it all. The clouds lifted. Remfrey saw the coil whipped towards Penfield. There came a thud. Lon was swept off his feet and dashed against the board pile. Dropping like a lump of clay, he lay motionless. Remfrey thought his mate was killed. He faced the hose with sudden fury. Just then, it caught for an instant under the end of a board. His chance! Hurling himself upon it, he wound both arms about the swelling tube, just as it got away again. Twining arms and legs round the hose, he hitched slowly forward. The whole thing now was on him. Him! Lon could not help any more. Inch by inch, he crept along the squirming tube, hugging it bearishly. 
It flirted him one side to the other, rolling him in the dirt. It humped itself like a bucking bronco. Once it tossed him against the boards, almost fracturing his ribs. In spite of it all, he did not let go, for he knew he could never get hold again. A weak cry made him look back. Under the smoke, he caught sight of Penfield, struggling to rise. He had only been stunned. A great weight fell from Remfrey's mind, and he clung with fresh strength. Take your time, Lon, he shouted. I'll hold it down. Huge, black, formless, fiery-eyed, spitting forky flame, the conflagration overshadowed him like a gigantic Chinese dragon, the spirit of ruin personified. Against its searing breath he crawled, now prone, now tossed aloft, battered, smoke-stifled, but creeping steadily on. The end of the big tube was not far away. Remfrey could tell that, for its oscillations were growing shorter and more violent. The part conquered lay quiet behind him, but somewhere in the smoke in front the metal pipe was brandishing like the snapper of a whiplash. With lightning suddenness, down it smashed on the hose not three inches before his fingers. Had it struck his hand, it would have splintered every bone. The polished brass glinted as it gyrated wildly away. The next few feet would be the most perilous, for at any second the nozzle might crack his skull. The hot black smoke puffed along the ground. Remfrey butted blindly into it, lowering his face till his lips brushed the dirt. Inch after inch of hard, round tube slipped back under him and grew quiet. With eyes closed tight, he wriggled on. When he was within a yard of the pipe, he knew it would stop slatting. The moment came sooner than he had expected. With one final flirt, the nozzle gave up, conquered, and the jet began to furrow the chips and dirt. A second later, Remfrey's fingers touched the brass handles. Soon, Penfield was beside him, his strength and consciousness fully restored, and they took up once more their battle with the flames. It was well towards morning before the fire was out, and the two started for home. Remfrey felt better. The city was safe. Still, the thousands of dollars' worth of lumber that had gone up in smoke hung, a black, heavy pall above his conscience. He dreaded to meet Jack and Billy. As he stumbled on, a sentence from a passerby caught his ear. Started by a rocket from Triangle Hill, across the river. He gripped the man's arm. Are you sure? he almost shouted. Sure, briefly rejoined the stranger, looking in surprise at his begrimed, excited questioner. Remfrey dropped his arm. So his boys were not responsible after all. Bruised, muddy, Saturated with pitch-pine smoke, every muscle aching, he resumed his way homeward, his mind at peace. End of section 12